Startle us, O God, with your truth, and welcome us with your love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's Gospel lesson started with one of the most common phrases in the Bible. As Tina mentioned it to our children, it comes up all the time in God's declarations to the patriarchs in Genesis, in Moses and the prophets. hearing a lot about fear. To be sure, we often have weeks when fear plays an outsized role in what we see and hear around us. And last week, I talked about that rather specifically. But I think it is important to note that when fear is not the first thing in the headlines every day, fear still plays an important role in our lives all the time in ways that are easy for us to forget about and take for granted. If you think about it, most of you can probably remember what it was like to fly before 2001. I was talking with some friends about it this week. Do you remember escorting your parents or your spouse all the way to the gate before saying goodbye? Do you remember arriving a few minutes late for a flight and they actually reopened the jetway door and let you on? Do you remember arriving at the airport only 20 minutes before your flight on purpose? Because why would you need any more than 20 minutes? It's easy to recall these conveniences with a little laughter and nostalgia and forget that the way we have it today is driven by an accepted adaptation to fear. Even if you think that every TSA precaution of today is good and necessary, the fact remains these are precautions we accept because of fear and because we have a desire to control those fearful things. And of course, we will never totally control them. Of course, we had plenty of fears before 2001. I'm not trying to shame anyone who may work for Homeland Security or the TSA, nor am I pointing the finger as though I do not have plenty of fears of my own. The airport is a convenient example, but of course, fear is a normal legitimate human emotion with a wide range of good and healthy purposes. Fear of illness and death promotes healthy living. Fear of injury keeps us from walking into traffic. Fear of loneliness or jail promotes good behavior. 
At the same time, fear is one of those things that has a creeping effect in our lives where it eventually tips from healthy into debilitating. Where instead of promoting survival, it becomes a force that keeps us from living. There's nothing wrong with working because you fear abject poverty, but how often are we consumed by work because we are too fearful of not having all the right stuff? We rightfully fear the pain of rejection, but how often do those fears keep keep us from finding real love or genuine friendship? We rightfully fear death by gun violence, But how often does that creep into fearing a different religious group, a different racial group, a neighborhood you have decided is unsafe? Here's one you might relate to. How often do we fear being less than perfect? Have you ever heard someone say, don't let perfection get in the way of progress? How often do we end up doing nothing at all because we couldn't get to perfect? Fear is not only a completely normal human emotion. It has been with us forever. And in the passage we read this morning, Jesus speaks to people who are afraid. So he says to them, do not be afraid, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is one of the things Jesus talks about more than anything else. The kingdom doesn't just refer to someplace else. It doesn't just refer to heaven. Kingdom living is a way of being in this world. Kingdom living is a way of living where our lives are not focused on fear. So what does that look like? What does kingdom living, life without fear, look like? And how can you get it? Well, as you might imagine, given the incredible prevalence of fear in the world, kingdom living is not easy. But this morning's story gives us a few suggestions that I will commend to you to think about. The first one is obvious, and I'm sure that you have heard it before. It's just one of those things that we have to keep reminding ourselves of over and over and over again. Sell your possessions, says Jesus, and give alms. Make make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Often we are afraid, most of the time we are afraid, because we have something to lose. While some of the things we have to lose, family, love, friendship, some of the things we have to lose are well worth holding on to. But our lives are also filled with other stuff we don't really need. 
And the more of those things we have, the more we have to be afraid of losing them. Kingdom living is for people who hold those lesser things more lightly and are willing to let them go. Because they have less of themselves invested in things, they have less to be afraid of losing. At the next turn in the passage, Jesus talks about another quality of kingdom living. If I had to give it a name, I would call it consistency or constancy. Jesus gives an illustration. He says, be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. This illustration is about servants who honor their master. They are consistent and constant in their service to the master. And this is because their master is dependable, a source of their livelihood, worthy of their respect and love. And so they bet their lives on the master. They stake their lives on that master. They know that without their master, they have nothing to hope for, but that with the master, even when life changes course, they have nothing to fear. They are unafraid because they are not trying to control everything in their lives. They serve the master because they know the master wants good things for them. Now, of course, this illustration falls apart if the master is a tyrant and not a benefactor. But this is the Bible, and the master to whom Jesus is referring is, of course, God. And so the message is that when we anchor ourselves not to lots of other things, but to God, we have committed ourselves to one who will never leave or forsake us on whom we can depend when life makes us afraid. Isn't that what we're seeking in the face of fear? When circumstances change in your life, whether the question is about domestic terrorism or a surprise diagnosis or an important decision in our finances or our families. When circumstances change in your life, you want to know your life is in the hands of something that will not fail you. Here it works out nicely that we witnessed a couple of baptisms this morning, because this is really what baptism is about. And it is convenient that we had both an infant and an adult baptism this morning because it helps me to talk about what Presbyterians believe about baptism. There are plenty of Christians who only tend to baptize infants or adults and have reasons for that. We're happy to do both. When we baptize an infant, we believe that it does not matter that the child does not yet understand. Because it is not really the child 
is doing anything in baptism, nor is it the minister. It's God. We baptize a child asking God to take care of that child because we know that in the course of that child's life there is so much we will not be able to control. So we give up our control to God. We ask God, take care of this child. And with an adult, it works exactly the same way. Little Henry came for baptism today, but so did Ashley, an adult. And this morning we asked Ashley to make the professions of faith that Henry's parents made for him. We asked Ashley to make them on his own behalf. His parents didn't do them, do them for him. And that's not because Ashley is doing anything in the baptism. The important activity is still God's. God is claiming Ashley as a child, a child who belongs to God. And that is happening so that no matter what may come, God will protect and never leave or forsake him. Ashley has enough life experience to know that there is much which we cannot control. And now in baptism, he has it as an anchor in his life to point to what happened today and know that he belongs to God and always will. The same is true for little Henry. This is what we believe. Now I realize to some this may sound naive, and I'm not insinuating that we should not take appropriate precautions in the face of fear. What I am suggesting is that in the normal course of things, the courage and security we need to go out into the world each day probably does not come from things we often depend upon. Real freedom from fear does not come from a government agency or a training program. Nor does it come from the personal ability to make the right choices about which risks to avoid and which ones to take. Courage and security does not come from buying the right security system or having your money in the right investment account or adopting the right exercise routine or taking the right cocktail of medications. Any of these things may have their value. But we all know stories of the ways that all of these things have failed. I humbly suggest for your further contemplation that real courage, real freedom from fear, a real ability to hold things lightly and to deal with the losses that inevitably come, that kind of courage comes not from the quest to control as much as we can, but from admitting that there is much in life that is beyond our control, and so staking our lives in one who is bigger than the fears of each day. 
The Bible called that staking our control in the master, taking on the posture of servants or slaves. And before I close, I want to comment on that a bit because I imagine that there are some of you who are uncomfortable thinking about yourselves as servants or slaves. You'd like to think that your life has a little bit more autonomy than that. H.A. Dorfman is one of the great baseball psychologists. His book, The Mental ABCs of Pitching, is a classic. Dorfman encourages great pitchers to commit themselves to a routine, a pregame ritual, identical, down to everything from how you put your uniform on to the way that you walk out onto the field, the stretches you do, even where you set your water bottle. Self-discipline, he says, is a form of freedom. With these rituals, the pitcher can be cool about the thing that he is most passionate about. And anxiety is removed from the center of things. The same thing is true in so many areas of life. Learning the disciplines of any sport or how to play a musical instrument or sing is what allows us to enjoy these things. Learning the rules of a foreign language allows you to travel freely in places that would otherwise be inaccessible to you. Committing ourselves to what families and deep friendship require gives us the freedom that we need to live our lives in courage, knowing that we are not alone. And quite simply, religion is a similar relationship. Faith is a similar relationship. Our rituals and our commitments free us from the fears that surround us. Allowing ourselves to be servants of a God who loves us, who wants good things for us. That is the commitment that truly sets us free. And may it be so for Henry and for Ashley and for each one of you. Amen.